Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. When my son was about three, might have been, yeah, he's probably about three, maybe four, I took him fishing for the first time. And we went down to Minnow Road. There's a little lake, used to be, uh, about a half a mile from my house in Rex. And it was all grown up and just covered in duckweed and cattails and stuff. It's kind of filled in and been neglected, but I used to sneak over there and fish there when I was a kid. You know, in junior high, I'd ride my bike over there and sneak to that lake and fish. And I took Jackson there for the first time to fish. And this has been about seven years ago. So... We ride down to the bait store in downtown Rex, Georgia, and we walk in and the bait buying process, if you're buying worms, it, it's kind of neat because the, the store is full of, you know, fishing hooks and bobbers and they got a cage full of crickets and there's all this fishing stuff all over the walls. And it's kind of fascinating for a kid who's never seen all that before, but it, Ultimately, you walk up to the counter and you got your, you know, can of Vienna sausages and you got your Slim Jims and you got your pig skins and all the all the vitals that you'll need to eat while you're out there fishing. Then you need some bait. So you say, uh, yeah, let me have uh, let me have some red wigglers. And they always do this. They go back in their little refrigerated storage area and they pull out the little cup a little plastic cup might be styrofoam could be cardboard of the worms this little can of worms and i don't know why they do this but they always do this they pop the lid off and they've got this little board and they dump the worms out on them and you look at them i guess you're approving your yeah those worms look good to me they're kind of wiggling and moist and they're crawling around in that peat moss stuff and you give them the nod, and then they scoop them up, put them back in the can, snap the lid on it, and you pay your two fifty or whatever, and out the door you go with a can of worms. So we get over to the lake, and I got his little chair, and I got his little two-foot-long fishing pole and stuff, and I'm going to show him how to bait a hook. And I open that can of worms, reach down in there, and pull that worm out. And I'm showing him, and maybe he's watched too many cartoons or something he feels sorry for the worm <laughs> you know he doesn't want me to stick it anyway I'm like okay jackson reach down in there and pull you out a worm there ain't no way he's gonna put his hand in there with them worms and you know maybe maybe on some sort of genetic molecular level that may be a wise thing you know don't put your hand down in that bucket of worms Anyway, that's been a while ago. He can actually bait his own hook now because he is in the sixth grade now. And what sixth grader can't bait a hook? But anyway, me, I'm not afraid to open a can of worms and stick my hand right down in there and pull out a big glob of those nasty wiggling worms. That doesn't bother me at all. And I'm going to do that metaphorically today because I'm going to open that old can of worms what 
is bluegrass. Now, I will want to say this right from the get-go. I, I'm talking about what is the definition of bluegrass because it gets debated and kicked around so much and it seems like everybody's got their opinion of what is bluegrass. And so I'm just going to give you my opinion. That doesn't, doesn't bother me if you have a different opinion. But I'm going to talk about, I'm going to open that can of worms of what is bluegrass and I'm going to do it kind of quickly. I might come back later, possibly even in a series of, of podcasts and talk more about it. I just need to say this so that you understand where I'm coming from for the main topic. The main topic for today is something I threatened to do a couple episodes ago where I'm going to discuss fringe bluegrass instruments. I, I mentioned the dulcimer player, the poor dulcimer player that shows up at a hot bluegrass jam with her dulcimer. And so I said, well, I'm going to talk about all the fringe instruments. But before I do that, I need to set the stage and say, well, what are they, the, what are they on the fringes of? You know, if, if you're on the fringe or outside of the circle, which is the definition of something, we got to know what that is. So I want to give you my definition in a very short and concise way. I want to talk about this thing, what is bluegrass? And I'm also going to do another thing in this episode, and that is I've been doing a lot of reading. Jackson's been out of school all summer, so I did a compressed recording week where I knocked out about four or five episodes while my wife and, and son were out of town, and I've just been doling those out because it was just difficult to record. It was difficult to find any quiet time with Jackson over there practicing his piano or playing the trumpet or whatever he's doing. It was just hard to find quiet time. So he's back in school, so I'm going to get back on my regular schedule. So the second thing that I want, that I'm doing differently in this episode, and that is I've, I've always been very cautious about the whole copyright thing. When I started doing the podcast and I was researching, you know, how to do it and all this stuff. And I was going to do a little theme song intro, intro and outro thing for the show. And I, re you know, Googled putting music on your podcast. And I got, you know, articles, blog posts written by lawyers, you know, don't do it. You know, basically you're going to violate copyrights if you use somebody else's music. So I've stuck with this thing of only using music that I own all the rights to, or something that someone has given me permission to. But in this episode, I've, after all this research, I've decided that, and ain't it a shame that when it comes to the law, you have to like, let this stuff rattle around in your head. And it's just, it's just not clear what the law is. So what I've determined is that if I play a little bit of music as an example to illustrate something, and I'm going to give some commentary on it, and it's used in an educational manner, that's not a violation of anybody's copyright. It's kind of like, you know, reviewing something. So, this is going to be the first episode where I use actual 
clips from commercial recordings of which I do not own the rights to the songwriters, the publishing, not distribute, nothing. I have no financial interest in the songs that I'm going to use little snatches of as examples because sometimes there have been many of podcasts I wish I could have said, now listen to this. And I've decided that I can do that under the fair use principle. So at least for this episode, I'm going to do that today. Just a couple of examples to get some points across about what is bluegrass. So let's get into this first little preparatory phase of what is bluegrass. And here's my first little mental example. If you heard the song Rocky Top, just even saying the title of the song, a lot of people will instantly think bluegrass. Rocky Top equals bluegrass. But if you heard Rocky Top played by the London Philharmonic, is it still bluegrass? And if you say, yeah, that's, that's still bluegrass, then you're one of those people who thinks bluegrass is defined based upon the song. The song defines it. Foggy Mountain Breakdown, that's a bluegrass song. And I don't care who plays it, it's still bluegrass because they're playing Foggy Mountain Breakdown. That's kind of the song-based definition of bluegrass. I don't subscribe to that. I'm more of the opinion that bluegrass is based on the instrumentation and the style of playing those instruments and the style of singing. And then the last thing would be the thematic content. You know, that plays some part in it too. Again, this episode is not my not meant to present my full-blown definition of bluegrass, but I want to define this stuff, what I think it is, so that you'll understand why I think these other things are fringe instruments, and we're going to get to the fringe instruments. Okay, so here's the first example where I, I believe that the song itself does not make it bluegrass, like the Rocky Top with the London Philharmonic. I'm sorry, the London Philharmonic is not a bluegrass band. I'm sure they would happily admit that. And I doubt they've ever played Rocky Top. Just using them as a gross example. And I played in a band for years, a bluegrass band, and we did Beatles songs. And we did Alabama songs. And, we, you know, we did all kind of stuff. But it was still bluegrass. It was certainly bluegrassy because we followed the rules of bluegrass as I see them. So let's talk about a couple of songs. The first one I want to mention is the song 10 Degrees. And I'm going to play a few clips. 10 Degrees as recorded. First of all, 10 Degrees is a song written by Gordon Lightfoot. He put it on an album in 1971, 10 Degrees and Getting Colder. Sometimes you see it written that way. He's not a bluegrass artist, but Tony Rice liked him a lot. You know, liked his stuff. And so when Tony Rice was in J.D. Crow in the New South, and they're in the studio doing that classic album, the Bird album, the one with Old Home Place on it, there's the song Ten Degrees. And when you hear it, it's bluegrass because it's being done by a bluegrass band in the bluegrass style, the bluegrass rhythm, the, the singing style, 
and the instrumentation. And so here it is. the idea there that's bluegrass bluegrass jd crow style i mean it's not bill monroe but it's still within the boundaries of what we would what i would call bluegrass i need to get on this and say i because this is all my opinions now i want to play for you another version of the same song and this one i don't need to worry about copyrights because well maybe i do i don't know this is a home recording that I made of that same song. I got this wild idea. I went to a yard sale one day. I'm walking, I'm over in East Atlanta and I'm at a yard sale and some guy had a bunch of cassette tapes laying there and I started thumbing through the cassette tapes and I bought one and it was called the, on the label of the cassette. It said similar to heavy D 10 cents similar to heavy D like I want to, I want to know what this is. So I bought this cassette tape similar to Heavy D. I don't even know who Heavy D is, which may be a good thing. I don't, I don't know. Somebody, I'm sure, Heavy D, I'm sure knows who Heavy D is, but it was called Similar to Heavy D. So I get the thing home, put it in the cassette player and hit play. And what I hear is like a, a rap backing track. I'm like, oh. This is cool. I guess it's like this is sort of a, you put this on and then you rap over it. I was like, what if I could play the banjo to this? So I, I dumped the, the, the song that I picked into my boss BR8 and I started playing the banjo to it. I'm like, I could do this. This is pretty cool. I could play, I, I could be the, the next Jeff Mosier. And I start playing the banjo and laying it down on this thing. Played through the whole track. Well, that's pretty cool. What if I could sing a bluegrass song to this track? I, and I, I really couldn't think of anything run off. And the first thing that popped to mind was 10 degrees. And I started messing around with singing 10 degrees over this track. And I put a mandolin in there too and some other stuff. But I got to the chorus and I got stuck. I couldn't figure out how to do the chorus. So I called my wife downstairs to the dungeon uh, recording studio. And I said, listen to this thing. I'm kind of doing a rap version of 10 Degrees. What should I do with the chorus? And she thought up something. And I said, well, just go in there and record it. And so I hit record and I recorded my wife singing the chorus to 10 Degrees. And... I'm going to play it in just a second. Well, I'll let you judge. Is this bluegrass? He was standing by the highway 
sign said my way I heard a driver come about a half a mile away So we held the sign up I heard a so could miss it It was 10 degrees or colder down my motor down that day He was raised up in Milwaukee though he never was a famous Just a road musician to the taverns he would go Singing songs about the ram and love goes again How the world fell on his shoulder back in Boulder I don't know I would say no, that is not bluegrass. It's interesting. And I've played that for some of my bluegrass friends. And they're, they're, they're either like completely bewildered and destroyed like what? Or they're like, man, that is really cool. Anyway, that's just me playing banjo and mandolin along with the similar to heavy D cassette tape that I bought for 10 cents and my wife singing the chorus. And uh, I think I recorded it or twice and put them both in there. So it's the double Darlene effect. So my point is that if the song does not define whether it's bluegrass, you can clearly hear the difference between JD Crow and the new South and me with my experimental similar to heavy D 10 degrees. One of them you'd say that's bluegrass and the other one you'd say that's not. So if, if you're like that, you're like me. Here's another example, wild horses. We used to do this in Cedar Hill. And we probably ripped it off off the Olden in the Way album. Wild Horses is a Rolling Stones tune. It came out in 1971. Uh, coincidentally, so did 10 Degrees. 1971, Gordon Lightfoot put that out. Wild Horses came out in 71 on a Rolling Stones album. Recorded, by the way, in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. And if you hear the Stones do it, well, let's just hear them. cool not bluegrass even though it was recorded in alabama it's still not bluegrass but now let's listen to olden in the way do the same tune
holding in the way, does it? It's bluegrass. Why? Why is it bluegrass? Because the instrumentation is bluegrass. The style of playing is bluegrass. And, you know, they're stretching the boundaries for sure. But the singing style and the rhythms, it's bluegrass. So, once again, bluegrass is the instrumentation, the style, the rhythm. You know, it's this little set of rules. Here's another example, and then I'm going to be done with the clips. Think about the song, I Saw the Light. I've played that at many a bluegrass jam session. Hank Williams wrote the song, I Saw the Light, 1946. When Hank recorded it, by God, that's country music. no doubt in your mind that that's country and not bluegrass. Well, Bill Monroe in 1958 recorded I Saw the Light. I bought the a CD called I Saw the Light, Bill Monroe. I bought it at a truck stop. <laughs> so, uh, you know, here's Bill doing I Saw the Light. Now, friends, that's bluegrass. And if you agree with what I'm saying here, then you agree that bluegrass is based upon the instrumentation, the style of playing and singing. Not so much on the actual song itself. When I was with Cedar Hill, we had a, we had a joke, well, onstage banter that we said a lot of times when we did non-bluegrass songs. We would take a song might be a John Denver song or, I mean, it, it doesn't matter. We did a lot of variety because we wanted the audiences who weren't bluegrass people to get into what we were doing. So we'd play songs they knew in the bluegrass style. And Jimmy would often say, yeah, we took this song and threw it down on the ground and bluegrassed all over it. So you can take a song and bluegrass all over it and it becomes bluegrass. We used to do Freebird. And me playing slide mandolin. You know, we're playing around on the fringes, on the, in the dangerous territory. But let me tell you something. You bluegrass performers, living on the fringes will draw more people to your shows. Okay, enough about what is bluegrass. 
Maybe one of these days I'll come back and dig into that can of worms again. For, but for now, I'm just going to put the can of worms away. And I want to talk a little bit about the basic bluegrass instrumentation. I think it is very safe to say that a bluegrass band, you can tell a bluegrass band by looking at a picture of them. If I show you a picture of a, a string quartet with a violin, viola, cello, and bass, and I show you a picture of Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys or Del McCurry band, you could point out, because you're smart and you know what bluegrass is, you could point out which one's the bluegrass band, even if you didn't know who the people were, because of the instruments. A bluegrass band is a an upright bass, a five-string banjo, an acoustic guitar, flat top, no cutaway, a mandolin, preferably the F5 style, and a fiddle. It looks like a bluegrass band, probably is. Now, I will be the first to admit that if a band walked on stage and looked exactly like a bluegrass band, what I just described, or let's say that bluegrass band walked out and played a meticulously, perfectly executed um, Baroque Bach three-part invention or something, and I heard them play it, and I'm like, man, that is good music, but that ain't bluegrass. So just having the instruments alone is not enough. You also have to have the style. You got to have the rhythmic style and the, uh, how you stack the instruments, how you stack the vocals, how, you know, your delivery. There's more to it than just holding the instruments, but the, holding the instruments is a huge factor in deciding whether or not something is bluegrass and Spigma. The Society for the Preservation of Bluegrass Music in America is a perfect example of this. They actually define bluegrass based upon what instruments you play. It's a valiant effort on their part to lay down some rules for what the heck bluegrass is. You know, because, I mean, honest to God, there was a, there was a debate not too long ago on Manon Cafe where the IBMA you know, put forth their nominees for this year's awards winners or, you know, nominees for the awards and mandolinist of the year and bass player of the year and instrumental group of the year, you know, all, all the nominees were out and boy, here came the debate. You know, you got some people going, well, yeah, that person can play the mandolin, but uh, they haven't put out a bluegrass record in 20 years. I wouldn't really call them bluegrass, you know. And so this can of worms got opened up and, you know, dumped out on the counter where you see all them slimy worms crawling around. And I'm just one that's that uh, kind of leans toward the spigma thing that, well, let's start with instrumentation. If You know, if you get outside the boundaries of instrumentation... You know, you're starting to stretch it, and pretty soon the rubber band breaks, and it's no longer bluegrass. So I'm going to talk about all that here, and let me turn the page of my notes, and we're going to get to fringe instruments. I said that the standard is mandolin, flat-top guitar, preferably a Martin, fiddle, three-finger Scruggs-style banjo, 
and offshoots, but with picks and the bass fiddle. Well, Spigma has this thing about if you play electric bass, at least they used to. I don't know if they still do, but electric bass was banned. If you played electric anything, but if you played electric bass, then you couldn't be in Spigma. And that's, hey, it's their organization and can do what they want to. Uh, Pony Express, the band I was in, was a member of Spigma. But I got to tell you something. When, when I heard about Spigma and we had Pony Express ramped up about 1998-99 and we were looking to play festivals i got the idea well maybe we should join spigma they put out this annual directory and they list all the bands and then festival promoters will look through that and go well i might like to have them so i thought well that'd be a good thing to do so we got the band together we took a picture mandolin guitar fiddle three finger scrug style and its offshoots banjo and bass so we took this picture, sent it in with the whatever the whatever twenty four bucks or whatever it was you had to send in, and you know Pony Express became a member of Spigma. And then uh, I don't know a few months later, I get this big fat envelope in the mail, and in it is the Spigma band directory. So I tear the thing open and I pull the book out, and our band was called Buddy Ashmore and Pony Express. Well, they had alphabetized all the bands. And if they had a band leader, they must have used their last name as the how they alphabetized. And I flip that thing open, and the very first band is Buddy Ashmore and Pony Express. There's our picture. There we are in our contact information and blah, blah, blah. Spigma members. It described what the membership requirements were. And it suddenly dawned on me that we didn't meet the requirements. Because Randy Godwin, our bass player, wonderful bass player, was playing a 62 jazz bass. But in the picture, when we took the picture, he had the thing strapped on in the normal way. And he was in the back row and you couldn't see the bass. You could see the strap, but you couldn't see the bass. But had they seen the bass, if he'd had his neck up, that fender headstock sticking up right next to Buddy's ear they would have rejected our application strictly based upon the fact that we had an electric bass player. Now I've never been a huge fan of electric bass. I do understand that it's a whole lot easier to pack around in the back of a station wagon when you're touring, you know, it, it does make life easier in some ways in terms of space, but I've always loved the sound of an upright acoustic bass, but at least in those days, and I don't know if it's still true, Electric bass was not part of the definition by Spigma. Now, my de definition is, I don't care. I don't care if you play bass fiddle or electric bass. I much prefer bass fiddle. I don't like a real busy bass. And I some of that live J.D. Crow stuff, oh, man. And some of the Boone Creek stuff, the, the bass has just gone nuts, in my opinion. Good bass playing, but I, I don't know. It's just over the top for me. But... I'm not too worried about that, which one of those you, you pick, but that's the five mandolin, guitar, fiddle, scrug style, three finger banjo picking and bass, be it electric or an upright, a doghouse. Then comes the dobro, 
Well, when Flatt and Scruggs split off from Bill Monroe, I think they were trying to differentiate themselves. They were still basically playing bluegrass in a somewhat different style and favored by some. But they wanted to be recognized differently. So they carried a, a mantle player for, for a good while, and I'm sure they were answering you know, Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys' requests. But the mandolin faded and was replaced by Josh Graves on the dobro, and that became the forefront lead instrument along with Scruggs and the fiddle. So they kind of shuffled out the mandolin and brought in the dobro. Well, because of the popularity of Flat and Scruggs and the popularity of Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys, you kind of merge those two together and you, you get six instruments that are okay in bluegrass that are still considered bluegrass. Mandolin, guitar, fiddle, banjo, bass, and dobro. Then comes the fringe instruments. And I hear this kind of thing all the time when discussing what is bluegrass. One of the arguments often brought up by the crowd who thinks anything goes, it's all good. You know, we, you know, they don't look at instrumentation as a definition of bluegrass. Those people tend to use this argument, and I've heard it many times, put in print too. Well, Bill Monroe, you know, used to have an accordion player. And so because Bill Monroe once had an accordion player, that is true, Sally Ann Forrester, that is true, then that makes, and they were called the Bluegrass Boys, even though she was a girl, that because Bill had an accordion player for a short period of time, therefore anything goes. I, I don't subscribe to that. I, I classify the accordion as a discarded instrument. Bill Monroe tried it. I don't think he liked it because if he liked it, he'd still have it in 1975. He ditched it. I would say the accordion got ditched. I love the accordion. I'm not going to get into that. I'm not dissing these other fringe instruments, but the accordion will be the first fringe instrument it was discarded. It was an experiment, a failed experiment. You could say the same thing for the banjo picking style. When String Bean was playing banjo with Bill Monroe, he was not playing in the Scruggs style. He was playing the frailing and the two-finger thing. Well, when Scruggs came in, the two-finger and the frailing, you know, that stuff was discarded. And the three-finger picking with thumb pick, index finger, metal pick, middle finger, metal pick, three-finger style picking, a la Scruggs, Bill liked that better, and so did the audiences. So the old style, the frailing style, the Grandpa Jones, was rejected, discarded. So it became fringe at that point. I don't want to hear people coming up, well, you know, uh... Bill Monroe once had string bean, you know, he was frailing on the banjo. So that means, you know, if you're frailing on the banjo, that's bluegrass. No, it's not because it was discarded. That's Brad Laird's opinion. Whereas the dobro was accepted. So let's get on down with the list of more fringe instruments. The next one you'll run into is the harmonica. 
because if you listen to Flat and Scruggs recordings, you're going to hear some harmonica and some good harmonica playing. And it's sort of mildly accepted. It's like halfway accepted because Flat and Scruggs used it. Bill Monroe didn't. So what do you do with it? Clearly, both those bands are what we're trying to call bluegrass, which I don't know. You know, it's tough. But it was more or less accepted because the harmonica can kind of do what a fiddle can do. It can sustain notes and it can play notey lead solos. It's kind of a substitute for the fiddle. There have been times when Pony Express, when we had that eight-year stint playing at a Mexican restaurant, if our fiddle player couldn't be there, had a great harmonica player who lived two doors up from me, Harps Jackson. And I would sometimes, if I couldn't find a fiddle player, I'd sometimes call Harps because he could kind of fill the role of a fiddle. So a harmonica is semi-accepted. Then you got the snare drum quandary there bill monroe didn't ever use it certainly not on stage to my knowledge but some of the bands started including snare drum and sometimes full drum kits but snare was very common and i think it was an effort to make the music more danceable and to make it more commercial you, you go back and listen to old Jimmy Martin and the Sunny Mountain Boys, and you're gonna you can find YouTube videos of them playing on stage. You got a snare back there. I used the uh, first bluegrass festival I went to the uh, Marietta Bluegrass Festival. Saw Bluegrass Incorporated. Bluegrass Incorporated walks on, looks like a total bluegrass band. Got the matching shirts and everything, and they got a snare drummer. Just one snare drum. Well, so did Jimmy Martin. So you have to kind of include the snare drum in that, well, it was accepted by some and discarded by others. But over time, as the definition of bluegrass became more solidified, just like when Bill ditched the accordion and ditched the frailing banjo, over time, when you get up into the 90s, Snare drum is dropped. It is just not cool anymore. Same goes for electric guitar. There's a Bill Monroe album. Owen Bradley dragged Bill Monroe into the studio one time and tried to make him more popular and put an organ, an electric guitar solo. and It's the most hideous, god-awful stuff you ever heard. just uh, it's painful to listen to anyway the electric guitar experiment was failed experiment in terms of what is bluegrass it clearly was not bluegrass same goes for the organ thanks owen bradley same goes for the pedal steel i mean jd crow was pumping pedal steel in some of his records you know you listen to the that great record with keith whitley there's some killer steel on there
he's pushing the fringes, but you know, so how far can you pull the fringes? How far can you stretch the boundaries of bluegrass and it still be bluegrass, but it's bluegrass with a steel or it's bluegrass with a snare. I was trying to explain this to my son the other day and I said, well, it's like this picture. You have a cow, just a cow standing out in the pasture and the cow looks like a cow. The first cues are visual and it sounds like a cow acts like a cow. Well, that's the way bluegrass is. It looks like it, it sounds like it, and it acts like it. I said, but what if that cow suddenly had a trunk, went all the way to the ground, it was picking up peanuts and eating peanuts, and then it grew some tusks. Is it still a cow? Is that a Well, it's, it's mostly a cow. It's a cow with a trunk. You could get it in Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum had this cow with a trunk and it grew tusks, but it's still a cow. We still call it a cow. It's a cow with tusks and it's a cow with a trunk. But there comes a point if you lose the cowhide and switch it for that gray wrinkled skin, hmm, is it still a cow? And then give it big ears fanning itself and a little, little scrawny tail and big barrel like feet. I mean, if you keep changing enough things, eventually Farmer Brown comes down the road and he looks over in the field and he goes, darn, there's an elephant. He don't say, darn, there's a cow because enough factors have changed. So as you begin to fool around the fringes like J.D. Crow did and like Jimmy Martin did, you begin to play around with the fringes of what is bluegrass. Then at some point you've crossed the line. And any fool could say, well, that ain't bluegrass anymore. For example, if I had a bluegrass band, which I have had many times, and if I changed the bass to an electric bass player from an upright to an electric, am I still a bluegrass band? I would say yes. What if I changed the banjo to a four-string tenor banjo? Hey, it's still a banjo. And we're still playing Rocky Top. And then I ditch the guitar player and get a trumpet and fire the mandolin player and hire a trombone player. And I'm kind of sick of that fiddle player and I get a clarinet. So now I got a string bass, four string banjo, trumpet, trombone, and clarinet. Am I a bluegrass band? In my opinion, no. I have now become a Dixieland jazz band. Even if I play Rocky Top, you get the basic ideas. What if I took that, that bluegrass band, bass, banjo, guitar, mandolin, and fiddle. I switch the bass over to electric bass. I take the banjo and I make him into an electric rhythm guitarist. Then I take the guitar and I just put him on electric guitar, you know, Telecaster or something. I fire the mandolin player, but I'm still missing that offbeat chop. So I just get me a drummer, full drum kit, tell him to hit them offbeats. Fiddle player, I replace him with a keyboard player. So now I got electric bass, rhythm electric guitar, electric guitar, drum kit, keyboard. Sorry, folks, that ain't bluegrass. Even if you play Man of Constant Sorrow, Rocky Top, Foggy Mountain Breakdown. Well, those are songs associated with the bluegrass style, but the way you guys are playing them ain't bluegrass. That's uh, Brad Laird's opinion. Now, let me just 
to wrap this episode up, I'm going to race through some of the other fringe instruments that in no way do I mean to offend. I don't care what instrument you play. I don't care what instruments are in your band. I really don't. I want you to do what you want to do. You might come up with some new combination that's, that's just super cool. All I ask is, if it stretches the boundaries too much, at least be creative. So you're so creative in coming up with your, your own style and combinations of it. Could you not be at least creative enough to come up with a new name for it? I have a great deal of respect for Peter Wernick when he was doing phase shifted banjo, mandolin, and electric bass. And he said, it's Niwat music. I have respect for David Grisman. When he ditches the banjo, has two mandolins, a fiddle, he might have called it a violin, an upright bass, and a guitar, and he's not using the bluegrass instrumentation, and he's not playing in the bluegrass style. He didn't call it bluegrass. Called dog music. Tony Rice did the same thing when he sprouted out of that and kind of went off on his own tangent in a similar way. He didn't call it bluegrass. He called it space grass. There's a guy, uh, a claw hammer banjo player. God, my memory's failing me now, but uh, gosh, if I think of his name, uh, Johnson, his name's Johnson. Anyway, Take out the three-finger style, put in the claw hammer style with everything else more or less the same. He didn't call it bluegrass. He called it clawgrass. Mark Johnson, that's his name, clawgrass. Hey, that's cool, man. I love all kinds of music. What I don't love is taking that name and uh, pretending it's something that it's not. I mean, come on. Think up a new name. You know, how hard is that? Bluegrass, new grass, you know. Thanks, Sam Bush. Okay, here are some other ones. We already went through uh, Dobro, accepted. Harmonica, sometimes accepted. Snare drum has been sometimes accepted. Full drum kits, more or less not. Electric guitar, not really, not as a permanent member. An organ, <laughs> No. Pedal steel. Man, I love the pedal steel. God, I do love the pedal steel. I don't want to go see a bluegrass band called a bluegrass band with a pedal steel. I'm sorry. I don't. Mandola and mandocello and other mandolin family instruments. Certainly Grisman had a great impact on bringing these instruments to the attention of bluegrass players who up to that point only knew about the mandolin. Because a lot of years had passed since the old Gibson mandolin orchestras in every town. In fact, the first time I ever knew about a mandocello was seeing a photograph on, I think it was Quintet 80, the David Grisman record. I buy the record, and man, this is really amazing stuff. I, I didn't know you could do this kind of stuff with, quote, bluegrass, unquote, instruments. It wasn't bluegrass, but there was a picture of, um, ah, gosh, who played fiddle with him? Anyway, holding a mando cello, and I thought it was some sort of Photoshop, pre-Photoshop, some sort of like 
photo manipulation where they just like enlarge this mandolin or something. I didn't even know what a mandocello was in 1980. As I went through my mandolin world news and my mandolin newsletter and stuff, I quickly wised up to the fact that there were mandolas and mandocellos and mando basses. But what I'm saying is none of those are considered to be bluegrass instruments. Despite the fact that you can pick up a third time out record, great song. I think it might be John and Mary is the title. I think. Kicks off with a mandola intro. Mandola all the way through. It's very cool. Well, is that bluegrass? You know, when you just change the trunk of the cow? Yeah, maybe it's still bluegrass. It's certainly bluegrassy. Bluegrassy. You hear a lot of songs where stylistically they got all the instruments, but they're kind of played in a kind of different style, you know? Cedar Hill was certainly prone to that. Yeah, you know, it's still bluegrassy. But if you do it all the time, if every song you do is in, you know, some other style, even though you're holding the instruments at that point, I would draw the line. Okay, dulcimer. I've already talked about the dulcimer in one of the previous episodes. Dulcimer has never been used in a bluegrass band, to my knowledge. Love the dulcimer. I sell a dulcimer instruction course. If you want to take it up, hey, pick up my dulcimer instruction course. Same goes for hammered dulcimer. The bones, spoons, uh, knitting needles on the fiddle strings, the flute. Um, Peter Wernick did an album called Dr. Banjo Steps Out. One of the coolest songs on that record is Pete playing phase-shifted banjo and a flute player. I don't remember who the flute player was. And they played Whiskey Before Breakfast. It's just, it's just great music. But that song in and of itself is not bluegrass. And I'm sure Peter Wernick would agree with that. Great music, just don't call it bluegrass. His album's called Peter Wernick Steps Out. I mean, he's stepping out, you know. Tin Whistle. Irish Tin Whistle. Love the thing. I, we got a can full of them here. My wife plays the Tin Whistle. I was asked one time to do a, a mandolin show at the Red Light Cafe where they asked seven mandolin players in Atlanta to come and do a show and each mandolin player would have four tunes and, you know, it was just like a showcase for Atlanta mandolin. I don't remember what they called it, like Masters of the Mandolin show or something. Something Bob Nyes put together. My old buddy Bob Nyes. Anyway, I got asked to do it. And so I was thinking up four songs and I put together a little group of David Ellis and Fred McIsaac on the bass and me on the mandolin because I wanted my guys to know my tunes. I was going to play some original stuff. And I got my wife to play Tin Whistle on it, on two of the songs. And we just played music. It wasn't bluegrass. So I love the Tin Whistle, but it ain't bluegrass. Okay, washboard. <laughs> washboard, I mean, you know, this stuff's showing up. Jew's harp, the jug. Those things are, I mean, they're fun. And... If you have a jam session, some guy pulls out his juice harp and starts twanging along. Hey, that's cool, man. But 
It's not bluegrass. I, I'm not saying don't do it. Make sure you understand that. I'm not saying don't do those things. You do whatever you want to do. Have fun. Play music. All right. Same goes for wash tub base. I was joking with my son. I was like, what am I, what am I going to do on the website now? I really need to, I need to come up with some more sales. You know, I'm, I know one of these days I'm going to need to replace my car. And I was thinking that, well, the majority of the increases in my sales can be directly associated to the release of a new product. You put out more products and you, you know, the, the gross at the end of the month is greater. You know, if you have a one product versus 10, I think there's 74 on my online store, go to bradleylayer.com. And I was joking with him. I was like, I, I just don't know what to do. You know, I've tried to write good, basic beginner material and intermediate material for a lot of the instruments. Just transmit the things that are in my head to other people. That's what, all I've really tried to do. And I was joking with him. And I said, maybe I should write a wash tub bass course. And I halfway got serious about it. I thought, you know what? There is some technique in wash tub bass. First of all, you got to know how to make your own instrument. That's probably one of the few instruments that generally the player makes his own instrument. You don't see that with the guy performing on the Steinway D. You don't see that with the, you, you know, Chris Thiele didn't make his mandolin, but I'll bet you by God, nearly every washed up bass player on the planet made his own bass. And I've made them. I made one for JR, who's the, one of the DJs over at WRFG. And I thought what he needs is a washed up bass and I made him one. So maybe I will do the wash tub bass course. But the question is, if you play wash tub bass in the bluegrass band, is it still bluegrass? Well, ask wash tub John, my favorite wash tub bass player in Atlanta, possibly in the whole world. Always wears a hat with a big flower sticking out of it. You know what? When he plays the bass, the wash tub bass with all else being the same, he may be that trunk on the cow, but when I look at it, I still say, well, that's, that's still bluegrass. So play around with the fringes all you like. I'm a big fan of fooling around with the fringes, as you can tell by my, uh, similar to heavy D 10 degrees track that doesn't bother me in the least. The only thing that bothers me is that, come on, be creative, come up with your own name for it because the. Bluegrass does sort of have a definition. And I said this episode was not going to be about me defining bluegrass, but I think I mistakenly did that here. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the show. All you fringe people just keep on fringing. Just, uh, you know, think up some new names for it. That's all I'm asking. Anyway, thanks everybody. And thanks especially to all of you mandolin treasure chest people. Thanks big help. There's only, I think as of today, there's only one left at that original price. So anyway, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you everyone. And I'm going to just go out with, uh, the tail end of that, uh, 10 degrees semi rap style, similar to heavy.
Hey, and one last technical note. That electric guitar you hear in this song is actually a Flatiron, 1985 Flatiron F5 Artist, plugged directly into a Fishman transducer and run through a bunch of effects in the Boss BR-8. So we held a sign of fire, so the decent soul could miss it. It was 10 degrees or colder down my boulder than the 